Hey, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good, good, good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing well. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 2. 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 2, and I'm super excited uh, to be with you this morning. I love getting to teach and preach. I don't know if you've ever thought that. I don't know if you've ever thought to yourself, Zach looks like he's having a blast. It's because I am, all right? I'm having the time of my life. I love getting to teach and preach. Uh, As I was preparing for this sermon, though, I had a weird dream that I'm going to share with you. Not like a a prophetic dream. I'm not uh, not that guy. What I mean is I had a, a dream that I was getting ready to preach, but here's what happened in the dream. So I was sitting in the congregation and a woman got saved in the middle of the service. Christ captured her heart and she got saved, which was awesome. But the way we then decided to celebrate it was as we were singing worship songs, we would just crowd surf her across the room. We would just kind of pass her around like a a beach ball, maybe at a concert, and they start just passing her around as we're singing this worship song. And I'm sitting there thinking, this is so weird. Why are we doing this? When I get up on stage, I'm going to correct this. And so the service goes on a little bit further, and I get ready to go up on stage, and I don't have my notes. And so I look over, and a lady has taken my notes and mixed them in with her papers for maybe theological equipping or something. So I go up to that lady, and I say in my dream, I'm I'm so sorry to bug you. I think you have my sermon notes, and I, I need these. Can I have those? And she goes, these are mine. And she pulls them like this. And so I grab them, and we start fighting over these notes. And then they just go everywhere, and I've got to pick them up and collect them, and at that point, I'm furious. We're already crowd surfing people, and people are stealing my notes. And so I get ready to go up on stage, and I look down to see what I'm wearing, and I'm wearing shorts and a vest with no shirt, okay? Like Aladdin, like Aladdin would have, a little purple vest, and as I'm walking up, my confidence instantly goes away. I'm like, why did I choose to wear this? Everybody's going to see my tummy, and so I, uh, I do that, and then I wake up from the dream. But here I am, clothed with my notes. So, let me pray for us, and then we will get into this text here in 1 John 3. Let's pray. Father, we come before you through the Son and by the Spirit and confess that you are great. We confess that you are unlike us and that we uh, oftentimes commit the sins of Adam and Eve and that we try to be like God instead of just submitting to you. So would you help us? Would you forgive us? Would you guide us? I pray for uh, a tremendous amount of clarity as we uh, get into this text. Uh, I pray that you would use your word to cut us, and then you would use your word to heal us. We love you, and we thank you. We want to ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's get into verse 2a. That's the first half of verse 2, and we're going to work through this text here phrase by phrase. Verse 2a says this, beloved, We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. So let's look at that first part. So let's, it's like 2AA. Let's look at that first little phrase, beloved, we are God's children now. First of all, notice that John is addressing them as beloved. We have seen this throughout the book of 1 John. John is this apostle. He's this kind of fatherly, grandfatherly figure in the faith, and so he will constantly address the Christians as beloved, little children, whatever it might be, and these are not pejorative terms. He's not downplaying them. He's saying, I love you. Please hear what I have to say. And the first thing that he says is something that's true of us now. If you're a Christian, what I'm about to tell you is true of you right now. You're not waiting for this to be true. It's true right now that we are God's children. That's what the text says, okay? Now, let me be extremely clear what this does and does not mean. When we say that Jesus is the Son of God, and when we say that you and I are sons and daughters of God, we do not at all mean the same thing. The Bible is clear that for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. 
Jesus is God's son by nature. He has always existed. He has eternally been the second person of the Trinity. He has eternally been the son. When the Bible calls us sons of God or daughters of God or children of God or something like that, it's an image. It's a metaphor. It's where God counts us in a relationship with him despite the fact that we're just these little people made out of the dirt that God made. So Jesus is God's son by taxes, by affiliation, by uh, nature, whereas we are God's children seen by adoption. That's the idea. Let me give you a really helpful paraphrase of this as we get ever ever increasingly closer to Christmas. It's this. The son of God by nature, we'll put it on the screen, so there it is. The son of God by nature became a son of man by incarnation, that the sons of men by nature might become sons of God by adoption. But that's the idea. We are God's children by adoption. He takes these creatures that he has made that have rebelled against us, uh, him, and what he does is he not only forgives us, he adopts us. I think we have a lot of trouble believing that. I think a lot of us would say, yeah, God forgives me, but he doesn't really like me. He doesn't really love me. No, no, no. He adopts you. And to make it even crazier, when we go, if you go to an orphanage to adopt a child, you're adopting a being that's like you, right? Another human. Well, when God goes to the orphanage, he's adopting a being that is unlike him. It's more like he goes to a pound and takes a puppy and then treats that puppy like it's his son or something like that, okay? Because we are just human. So you know those people, and I I have to be careful here, that way I don't, uh, don't be too mean. You know the people that treat their pets like people? You know these people? They'll take their little dog, Bootsy, or whatever, and they will put a sweater on him, and they'll put little shoes on him, and they will sometimes even let him eat at the table with other people. Now, to me, that is insane because that is a dog. The gap between you and God is infinitely more, though, than the gap between a dog and a human. That's what God does. When God adopts people, he doesn't adopt God. He's the only God. What he adopts are humans and then considers us to be his children. That is, that's what kind of, the kind of crazy love that that cat lady has for her cats that she uh, treats as her babies. God's love for us is even more than that. It's even crazier than that. It's even beyond that, that we would be considered to be sons of God by adoption. The New Testament scholar, he's a German, you can tell by his name, Rudolf Schnackenberg, that's a great name, says this, being a child of God, is above all to experience the love of the father, it is not the child's similarity to him, okay? Now think about how encouraging this is. If you have been adopted by God, think of what that means. First of all, it means you don't have to get better for God to love you. God only adopts problem children, okay? He only adopts, God only adopts special needs children. That's what he does. So if you think to yourself, man, I just, I feel like I can't get it right, and I feel like Christianity is easy for everybody but me, we all feel that way, and that's who God adopts. God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He doesn't adopt the best and the brightest. Look around, right? Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad God doesn't just adopt the Harvard grads and the Oxford grads and these kind of things? No, God takes people that he knows will be trouble and yet he doesn't regret adopting us, okay? You also need to know that if we're adopted by God, it means that God will never put you back up for adoption. Your salvation is set, your salvation is secure. God doesn't just forgive your sins, he adopts you, and he does not put you back up for adoption. At no point does God say, I didn't know this person would be that much trouble, and had I known this, this is taking a lot of my divine time, and so I really wish I would have done things differently. 
No, no, no. God, when he saves you, has already ordained slash knows everything that you're going to do, all the trouble you will be, how hard it will be to sanctify you, and yet he adopts you, he loves you, and he doesn't put you back up for adoption. And it also means this, that if you're in a relationship with God because of Christ, God always loves you even when you're being bad, even when you're struggling, even when you're sinning. Yes, he will discipline you if he needs to because he loves you, but his love for you doesn't change. So I've got two kids, I've mentioned this. My uh, son is four, his name is Judah, and my daughter Isla is uh, two, and she is very sweet, but also very sassy, okay? She has a lot of personality. So if little girls are made of sugar and spice and everything nice, she got a lot of spice, if I could say it that way, okay? And so we were sitting in the, uh, the living room, her and I, and my son Judah got in trouble. So he was disobeying his mom, and so mom took him into the bathroom to, uh, to discipline him. And Isla looks up at me and she says, Judah, trouble? And I said, yeah, Judah's in trouble. And she goes, <laughs> like that, like this maniacal laugh. And I, I'm trying to hold back my laughter because it's adorable. And uh, so I said, Isla, Isla, it's, it's, it's not good that Judah got in trouble. That's not funny. She goes, it is funny. <laughs> and she does it a second time. And then we start walking to the car because we're going to get dinner. And she looks up at me and she goes, I'm bad. And I said, Isla, I don't, I don't want you to be bad. I want you to obey. She goes, no, obey. I'm bad. So pray for me, uh, because if we, uh, if we don't get that under wraps now, that story ends with me having a son-in-law that I hate, okay? And so, uh, so what we're doing, though, is we're shaping her. Now, at no point in that process do I think to myself, I think I'm going to put her up for adoption. I think that because she's bad and knows it and revels in it, that I think, I really wish she wasn't my daughter. No, 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 no. My love for her doesn't change. And if I, being evil can be kind to my kids, how much more can God to his adopted children? Now let's look at the next part here. We've got kind of a double encouragement here. We've got to beloved, we are God's children now. This is already true of you. Rest in that. But then he says something else. He says this, and what we will be has not yet appeared. So he's saying, not only are you adopted now, but there's more good stuff coming. That what you will be when you are resurrected, when your salvation is complete, has not fully been shown yet, but it's coming. And there's a mystery here. He's saying, you're adopted now, but one day you'll be resurrected. One day you'll be free even from the temptation of sin. That day is coming and there's a mystery to it. We don't know everything about it, but it's coming and it's going to be good. Anytime I've taught on the resurrection, people have a bunch of questions that the Bible just doesn't address, right? They'll say things like this. What age will we be? I don't know, 21? Maybe that's just a guess. Maybe 33, how old Jesus was, maybe uh, when he was crucified, maybe, uh, I don't know, men seem to not get smart until they're at least after 50. I don't know. I don't know what age we will be. The Bible doesn't tell us that. I know that when we're resurrected, we won't have any deformations, but really, how short is too short for resurrection standards? If you're like 4'11 now, will your resurrected body be 5'2? I don't know. I, I assume that at the resurrection, Tim will look something like Shaq. Will your resurrected body have an appendix, some vestigial organ? Will we sleep? I know there's no darkness, but will we sleep? I don't know, but I know that it's going to be great, and that's John's point. We don't have all the details yet, but this thing is coming, and it will be excellent. So my family, we went on a little uh, kind of two-day vacation, if you can even call it that, to uh, San Antonio. 
So I don't know where you go on vacation, maybe Hawaii or something, but we just drive towards Mexico, and we, uh, we went to uh, San Antonio, and uh, on the way there, I was trying to describe to my kids all the fun things we were going to do. I was like, we're going to go to the Riverwalk, and we're going to go to the Alamo. What's the Elmo? No, not Elmo, the Alamo, remember, and I'm trying to describe going to the zoo and all these kind of things, and they just weren't getting it. So I had to say, listen, listen, it's going to be great, just trust me and you'll see. All you need to know is that I'm not a liar, and it's going to be great, and you're going to have fun. You can't fathom all the details now, but trust me, because it's going to be great. That's really what John is doing in this phrase here. We're already adopted as God's children now, and our final salvation is yet to come. Now, this gives us a tremendous amount of hope. How do we go through suffering now? How do we deal with issues now? How do we deal with these problems now? And it's by not looking at just the now, but by looking at the future. That one day when Christ comes back, he will make everything that makes you sad untrue. Amen? Here's what John Calvin says about this. For as to our body, we are dust and a shadow, and death is always before our eyes. We are also subject to a thousand miseries, and the soul is exposed to innumerable evils so that we find always a hell within us. The more necessary it is that all our thoughts should be withdrawn from the present view of things, lest by the miseries by which we are on every side surrounded and almost overwhelmed should shake our faith in that happiness which as yet is hidden. That is how we endure, that is how we persevere by casting our eyes to the future, not merely to the things we're going on that are going on in the present. Or as the Bible would say, 1 Corinthians 2, 9, but as it is written, What no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. You can't even fathom how great that's going to be. You're already adopted now. Your salvation's already secure now. You're already forgiven now. You're already justified now. And there's still more good things to come. And how good is it? You can't even fathom it now. That's what this text is saying. Take heart no matter what you're struggling with. Take heart no matter how uh, often you sin. Take heart that God is gracious. Let's look at verse 2b, second half here of verse 2. But we know that when he appears, now I need to pause and just give you a textual note here. The word he doesn't occur there in Greek. It literally just says appears. I actually think it's grammatically linked to the idea of what we will be. He's saying when what we will be appears, that's literally there. That's not how the translators took it here, but uh, it amounts to basically the same kind of idea, but just as a note for you. But we know that what we will be when that appears We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Look at that first few phrases, but we know, okay? Faith in the Bible is not how hard you believe something. That's how it's defined by like the prosperity gospel, that you'll have more money and you won't be sick if you will have faith. What do you mean by have faith? Conjure up this man-centered attempt to believe something hard enough. That's what the heretics mean by faith. That's not what faith is in the Bible. Faith in the Bible has very little to do with you. Faith in the Bible has very little to do with how hard you believe something. Faith in the Bible is that you're trusting God. And though your faith is weak, God is strong, so everything is okay. That weak faith still gets you the same strong Christ as does strong faith. And so faith in the Bible, these things that we know, it's not that we personally have to have certainty. We know that it's certain because God is faithful. Faith is knowing that God will be faithful even when you are not. Faith is knowing that God will be faithful even when you don't have faith. 
So John here is saying, this is something that we know, it's going to happen. It's not dependent upon how hard you believe it. It's not dependent upon you. It's not a maybe, it is a when, not an if. This is something that we know, and what is it that we know? It says, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. What does it mean to say that you will be like Christ, okay? Here's all that that means. That you will have perfect ethical purity, and it means that you will live forever. You will be resurrected, okay? So when it's talking about being like Christ, let's be clear, you are a human, you will only ever be a human. Christ is greater than you. Christ has always been God. The way that it's saying that we will be like him is through ethical purity and that we will have eternal life. New Testament scholar Robert Yarbrough says this, in eternity, Christians will be morally without sin, intellectually without falsehood or error, physically without weakness or imperfections, It's ironic that I even mess up my words when I say imperfections. That's how broken. That's how broken we are all the time, okay? Physically without weakness or imperfections and filled continually with the Holy Spirit. Look at this next part. But like does not mean identical to. And believers will never be, for example, omniscient or omnipotent as Christ is since he is both man and God, okay? But we will be resurrected. We will no longer die. We will no longer even be tempted, Now we're tempted, and if you have the spirit, you have the ability to resist sin to some extent, but yet when the the resurrection happens, we won't even be tempted, that we will be morally pure as Christ is. Now look at this next part here. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Look at this last little phrase. We're gonna spend a a lot of time here and do a little theology. You guys like theology? Three of you like theology. The rest of you wanna go to Joel Osteen's church or something. Uh, We're gonna do a little theology. That's a joke, guys. I had a bad dream, okay? Give me a break. You try to get up here and preach when you're afraid that you'll look down and you're wearing shorts. It says this, because we shall see him as he is. Now that phrase puts commentators into a fit. What does that mean? Who are we seeing? The Father? We're seeing the Son? We're seeing the Spirit? Uh, when we see him as he is, does that mean you can see him in his fullness? Can you, if you're beholding God, fully take in an infinite being? What does this mean? Okay? So what I wanna do is I wanna tell you what I think the text means, but then we need to do a little theology here. I think the text, when it says that we will see him as he is, it's talking specifically about Christ. You can see Christ, he has a human body, okay? And a human soul, human mind, he's truly human as well. And so you can see Christ, I think that's all the text is saying. The text is saying this, though Jesus loves you now, one day you will see him and there will be even a closerness that you have with him than you have today. I think that's the point of the text, okay? but I want to give you some theology here because there are different ways to interpret this passage. And so I want to tell you this. Everybody look at me, this is important. This might throw a wrench in your theological system. You cannot see God, period. You cannot see God. God is infinite. What does it look like to be infinite? God is Trinity. What does it look like to be Trinity? God is everywhere and nowhere at the same time because he is not a spatial being. What does it mean to then say that you can see God. Now, you might be saying, Zach, that sounds like a lot of philosophy to me. Does the Bible actually say that? Yes, it says it a bunch of times very clearly. Let's look at a few passages. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. That's pretty clear, ever. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known, okay? 1 Timothy 6.16, talking about God, says, who alone has immortality, uh, immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Notice it doesn't just go back in the past, it's something that cannot be done, okay? Past, present, or future. 
To him be honor and eternal dominion, amen. Colossians 1.15, talking of Christ, says he is the image of the what God? Invisible God. You know what invisible means? Not visible. That's what it means, okay? Notice that, that God is invisible. That attribute of God doesn't change. God is unchanging. He's not changing his attributes all the time. He is and has always been and will always be invisible. 1 John 4.12, here in the book of 1 John, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us, okay? So you cannot see God. Now, if you are a good theologian, though, here's what you're saying. You're saying, but Zach, what about the times, especially in the Old Testament, where it seems like people do see God? How are we supposed to understand that? Here's how you understand it. They never actually see God. They see a symbol of God. They see something that represents God. Abraham sees a smoking pot. He doesn't see God. Moses sees a burning bush. He doesn't see God. The Israelites see a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire. They don't see God. Isaiah has a vision, a symbol, but he doesn't see God, okay? So what you need to understand is places in the Bible where it says that Moses and God would talk face to face has nothing to do with visible seeing. God doesn't have a face. It has to do with closeness of community, okay? That's, what it, that's the idea. So can you see God? No. What does it mean then when the Bible says that we, blessed are the whoever's for they will see God or that in Revelation that we will see God? The idea is this, that you will experience God's presence. Not that you will physically see him. He cannot be seen. Rather though, that there will be a closeness with God that you have then that you do not have now. There's a way that you're seeing God, but it's more with the eyes of the heart. It's more with the eyes of the mind, not with your physical eyes. This, by the way, has always been the position of Christianity. Let me give you a great quote from an early church leader named St. Jerome. He was the one that translated the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into Latin. Here's what he says. The eye of man cannot see God as he is in his own nature. And this is true not of man only. Neither angels, nor thrones, nor powers, nor principalities can see its creator. This fact is true, listen to this, not only of the divinity of the Father, but equally of that of the Son and of that of the Holy Spirit forming one nature in the Trinity that it cannot be seen by the eyes of the flesh. Look at the next line though. But by the eyes of the mind, of which the Savior himself says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So you will really experience God, but the way that you experience him is not with physical looking, because God can't physically be seen, but there will be an experiencing of God that will bring you more joy than anything you can fathom, okay? Anything you can fathom. There's a sense in which we try to behold God, but it's in a sense with our, with our heart, not with our physical eyes. In case you're not convinced, this is exactly the way the New Testament talks about seeing God. Let me give you a passage here. 2 Corinthians, as the British would say. 2 Corinthians 3.18, 2 Corinthians. And we all, with unveiled face, so it's talking about us viewing God right now. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Notice what the Bible's saying. It's saying right now, you're beholding God, and as you behold God, he transforms you. How are we beholding God now? Not by physical seeing, but by this seeing with the eyes of our heart, our longing to think about and to know and to reach out and experience God, okay? That's the idea. That's the idea. This is what is known in theology as the beatific vision, I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase. In theology, this is called the beatific vision. The idea is, is that as we seek to encounter God and encounter God's presence, he transforms us through that. He changes us through that. So to use a little, uh, elaborate on an analogy by St. Augustine, 
Think about for a second that uh, of all the sand on the beach. You ever been to the beach? I hope you've been to the beach. It's got a bunch of sand. Now, however big that number is, multiply that by all the beaches on the world. And however big that is, multiply that number by how much sand is actually in the ocean. You see, the beach is just a small sliver. And whatever number you come up with, you are not one bit closer to infinity than when you began. And when you try to grasp that thought, you're barely grasping at seeing who God is. You're, you're reaching it missed to try to figure out who God is. That's how great, that's how awesome, that's how other God is. If when you're thinking of God, you think you have comprehended God, as Augustine would say, you're not thinking of God, okay? So yes, you will see Christ because he has a physical body because he's also man, but you will not see God's deity, but you will encounter God, and that's what the Bible is talking about by talking about uh, seeing God and these kind of things here. Now, you need to know that it is by the beatific vision that we are actually sanctified. So let me just break this down as pastorally as I can. The devil will do anything he can to get you to not look at God, to get you to not look at Christ. That's his job. He doesn't care what else you look at as long as it's not Christ. He doesn't care if you're looking at future worries because your eyes are off Jesus. He doesn't care, ladies, if you're looking at body image issues that you think you will finally feel beautiful and loved and accepted based upon how much you work out or what you eat or whatever it is. He just doesn't want your eyes on Jesus. He doesn't care, listen to this one, he doesn't care, the devil doesn't care, if you're looking at how good and how holy you are. The devil loves legalism because it takes your eyes off Jesus and you're constantly looking down at self to see how holy you are. The devil doesn't care what you're looking at as long as it's not Jesus. I struggle with anxiety and depression, and here's the irony when you struggle with one of those things, or both, is that you're always thinking, how do I get out of anxiety and depression? And your thoughts are not on Christ, your thoughts are on yourself. You guys ever seen the movie A Beautiful Mind with Russell Crowe? It's a great movie. He is a brilliant mathematician, but he sees people that are not there. He's, uh, he has a, a mental illness, and he sees people that are not there. He finally realizes that they're not real, because as everyone else gets older, those people don't get older. That's how he finally realizes that they're not real. Spoiler alert, this movie's been out for like 20 years, so sorry if that just ruined it for you. Now, here's what's crazy. The people don't go away. What he has to learn how to do is to not acknowledge them. There's this great scene in the movie where he's screaming at someone who's not there saying, you don't exist. And the guy's like, then who are you talking to? And so the whole point is to say, he'll, he'll finally learn, I just can't acknowledge that. It's still gonna hit me. They're still gonna appear. But giving into it and thinking about it, that's when I'm toast. So there's a great scene where he's teaching the class and there's a little girl playing jacks in the corners that doesn't really exist. And he's teaching and he kind of looks over there and he has to look away and he has to keep teaching. That's exactly what it's like with temptation that's exactly what it's like with uh, anxiety. That's exactly what it's like with depression. It will scream, look at me, deal with me, take your eyes off of Jesus and look at the problem. And the way that you actually fight those things is by not looking at them, but by looking at the Savior. You are transformed by this beatific vision as you seek to look upon God and his glory. As you meditate on God, as you take God's word and you keep it before your mind's eye all the time, that is one of the ways that we guard against sin, is that uh, God has given us his word and his word is true, and as we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, we have this ability to fight against sin. Verse three, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That's the command of this passage. It's not even stated like a command, it's stated as this thing that's just true, but it's an implied command in here. 
whoever knows Christ must also be pure as Christ is pure. And by the way, this should be no shock to you that the Bible commands us over and over again to be holy, to be righteous, to be pure. Let me give you a few passages. James 4.8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. By the way, just as a fun aside, I saw in a church bathroom one time, over the urinals, it said, wash your hands, you sinners, James 4.8, which I thought was really funny for the church to do that. Anyway, 1 Peter 1.22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. More purity language. Here's some more. 2 Corinthians 7.1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Hebrews 12.14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So let me ask you this question. Does the Bible command you to be pure and to be holy? Yes, it does. Okay. Now listen, this next part's essential. I think most Christians, though, are going about that process the wrong way, okay? Yes, we're to be holy, but how do we actually do that? How do we actually walk in holiness, okay? Sanctification, sanctification is a fancy theology word that means growing in holiness. Justification is where God declares you to be righteous because of Christ, though you are not practically righteous. Sanctification is where you grow in your day-to-day holiness. So when I say sanctification, I just mean growing in holiness. Here's what's weird about sanctification. If you look at it directly, it eludes you. But if you look at Christ, you get sanctification as well. So let me give you a bunch of parables, right? Like Jesus will say, the kingdom of God is like this. Let me give you a bunch of these with sanctification. Sanctification is like these bunnies in my backyard, where if I look directly at them or I try to go get them, they run away. But if I look at something else, they just come and sit alongside me. That's kind of like sanctification. Sanctification is like, have you ever tried really hard to make yourself fall asleep, it just gets worse, right? So you're thinking, I've got an early morning tomorrow and I'm going to be so tired. You start counting sheep. You're trying to make yourself fall asleep and the sleep eludes you. But if instead you relax and you think about something else, then you fall asleep. Sanctification is like when you mow your yard and if you're mowing and you look down right just in front of the mower, you're going to be turning all kinds of weird ways, okay? If you're looking just in the front of the mower, how am I doing today? Did I read my Bible? I said a curse word when I stubbed my toe. And you're just looking down at the mower. Rather, what you have to do is you have to look out at something outside of you, let's call it Jesus, and uh, that post on the fence. And as you're looking at that, your lines will be straight. Sanctification is like working on a farm. You might just go work on a farm and all you're thinking about is farming. You're thinking about throwing hay and carrying around sacks of grain and you look up six months from then and you've gotten very physically strong. You weren't trying to get physically strong. You weren't focused on getting strong. You were just focused on farming and the strength just kind of happened as you were focused on something else. Sanctification is like a magic eye. You guys remember what magic eyes are? They were like these posters or these books that you could see 3D images in. Well, if you take a magic eye and you just look at every individual line, it's just a big mess. What you have to do is you have to look through the image. You have to see through it. You have to focus on, you know, you got to put it near your nose and back up. And then all of a sudden, the entire beautiful picture comes together. What I'm saying is this. The Bible commands us to be pure as Christ is pure. That's what this text is commanding. But the way you do it is not by just your human self-effort of trying to be holy. It's by looking at Christ 
and by doing so, the Spirit makes you holy. That's the idea. So yes and amen to holiness. I think most Christians pursue holiness, though, the wrong way. Most of us, I think, pursue it the wrong way. So now, I'm going to get up on my soapbox and I'm gonna yell about something I'm very passionate about because I think it relates to this text, okay? If I tell you to be holy and to try to be pure, most of you will go home and you will try to do that in your own human effort. You'll go home and you'll say, okay, I'm going to read my Bible more and I'm gonna pray more and I'm gonna help the poor and I'm gonna try to not have these bad thoughts and I'm just gonna try to do it, okay? That's what most of you will do. So what I want to do is I want to absolutely crush any self-reliance you have on you. That's what I wanna do. I wanna crush any self-reliance you have on you. You see, the legalist thinks that God has given us a hurdle and as long as we train well enough, as long as we train better than other people, we can get over the hurdle, right? So God's given us a difficult hurdle and as long as we will stretch and we will run and we will lift weights, we can get over the hurdle. So I'm here to tell you this. God has given you a hurdle that's 20 feet high and you get no tools to get over it. You can run and jump all you want. Good luck, okay? So here's what you need to understand for your sanctification. God has not given us merely difficult commands. He has given us impossible commands. Do you believe that? I think a lot of us think that they're just difficult, but we can do it if we try. They're impossible. This is one of the things it means to be Protestant. We are a Protestant church. We are a Baptist church. We are a Reformed church. This is part of what it means to be Protestant. The Roman Catholics would say, if you have the spirit and grace, you can obey God's commands in the New Testament. The Protestants explicitly rejected that and said, God has not given us difficult commands. He's given us impossible commands. Let me show you what the Catholics said against Martin Luther, okay? Here's what the Catholics said against Martin Luther at the Council of Trent. If anyone says that the commandments of God are impossible to obey, even for one justified and constituted in grace, let him be damned. That's the Catholic position. I'm here to give you the Protestant position because I think it's more biblical and it's this. God has not given you difficult commands. He's given you impossible commands. So let me crush you with God's law and then we'll build you back up in the gospel. Does that sound good? So everybody's gonna hate this for a second because it's gonna make us really realize how bad we are, but then there's good news in the end. So hang on, let me give you some of these impossible things. Matthew 5, 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. How are we doing on that one? Anybody as holy as God? Because notice, this command says this is something we're to do. It's something that we're to be. We're to be this perfect. Here's what the legalist does. The legalist has to downplay God's word. The legalist has to say, this command says, do your best. That's not what this command says. This command does not say, do your best. It does not say, as I've heard a lot of people say, try to be perfect. It doesn't say that. It says to be perfect as God is perfect. And when you don't do that, you're sinning. This is an impossible command, but there's more. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It doesn't say, love your wife pretty good. Try to do the best you can in loving your wife. There is not one day in my entire marriage where I have loved Katie like Christ loves the church, not one. You see, we make these commands easier so we can follow them, so we can pat ourselves on the back. But God doesn't want them to be easier. He wants them to crush you. So you have to look at Christ. Philippians 2.3, I hate this passage, okay? It's God's word and it's biblical, but because I'm a sinner, I hate it, okay? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, okay? I hate this command. You know why? Because I think I'm better than a lot of people. <gasps> yes, that's sin. I'm agreeing. I agree with you. That's a confession, that wasn't a good thing. That was a confession. But you have to realize, how often do we break this? 
We'll say, oh, well, there's some people I think better than me. I care for my family. That doesn't count. Do you always and consistently care for strangers, enemies, and these kind of things more than yourself? Are most of your thoughts throughout the day about you and your job and your business and your family and your future? Or are most of your thoughts about others? I bet you, like me, are mainly thinking of yourself. When you buy a new car, you give away your old car to somebody, but very rarely do you just keep your old car and give that new car to a stranger. That's what this text is talking about. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, nothing where you're trying to get yours. You see, what we always do is because we realize how hard these commands are, we make them say something they don't say. The Bible says to be perfect, we say, do your best. The Bible says, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and we say, well, that's too hard, so I'll just give a little money to the church, that's the command. I mean, the Bible gives us these crushing, crushing commands. Matthew 5, 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We know that the Israelites did not follow God's commands in the Old Testament, okay? But we have a tendency to think, well, now that we have the Spirit in the New Testament, now we can keep all God's commands. The New Testament gets worse. The New Testament's harder. Now, if I just have anger, I've committed murder. Now, if I just have a lustful thought, I've committed adultery, right? They were allowed to get divorced in the Old Testament because their hardness of heart, but Jesus comes and says, that was never really God's intent, so unless there's sexual morality in marriage, that doesn't count. The New Testament gets harder, it gets worse. 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That text is saying the same thing the first one did. You are to be as holy as God. When you are not doing that, you are sinning, capital S. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about things unless you think you can control them. Do not be anxious about what? Anything. We break this every time you have a worried thought that you dwell on about your job, money, your family, some sickness, somebody who doesn't like you, what other people think about you, whatever it might be, you're breaking this, this command. You're breaking this command. Mark 12, 30. In case, in case none of those got you, in case you're just this perfect person, here's another one. Mark 12, 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. If all your thoughts 24-7 are not to the highest degree without any stain of sin possible in glorifying God, you are not following the greatest command and neither am I. Every sin I commit, I break this command. Every time I become worried, anxious, selfish, focused on self, unforgiving, whatever, I break this command. God's law is crushing. Now, what people do is they realize these commands seem unattainable. They seem unobtainable, so we'll make them easier. Try to be holy. Try to not lust. Try to do these things. So I want to give you something that's important when it comes to God's commands, and it's from the consummate theologian, Yoda. <laughs> do or do not, there is no try. God's commands here are not try to do them, they're to do them. So wait a second, Zach, if what you're saying and what the reformers are saying and what Calvin and Luther and those guys are saying, if what you're saying is that God has given us impossible commands, what hope do we have? You have no hope, which is why you need to trust Jesus. You have no hope in yourself, okay? You must trust Christ. Yes, grow in holiness. The way you'll grow in holiness, though, is not by trying harder. You're gonna grow in holiness by looking at Jesus. 
the reason I give you this is because as long as you think there's still something in you that can actually keep God's commands, the Catholic view, as long as you think that, you will never have the joy, nor the rest, nor the freedom that God has for you. You cannot keep God's law. It is impossible. It is there to crush you. So that you wouldn't stay crushed, you would put your eyes on Jesus, and in doing that, you would have salvation, you would have growth, you would have sanctification. It's all about Jesus. My hope is that for those of you still trying to get over the hurdle, today might be the first day that you throw your running shoes in the trash and might simply rest in the mercy and love and grace of God. That's how it works. If you come up to me and you say, Zach, you need to read your Bible more, that doesn't make me want to read my Bible. If you come up to me and say, Zach, God's love for you doesn't change even if you never read your Bible. That makes me want to read it all day long. I want to spend time with a God who already loves me. If you come up and you say, Zach, you need to pray more, that doesn't make me want to pray. But if you come up and you say, Zach, if you never pray again, God's love for you doesn't change, that makes me want to spend all day in prayer. You see, we are to be holy, we are to walk in purity, but the way that we do that is from something earlier on in the verse. It's by having our eyes cast on Jesus, focused on him, because we know that one day we will see him as he is. That's the way you actually grow in holiness. The other way leads to denigrating God's word because you make his commands too easy, and it leads to self-effort and self-righteousness. This is the only way to crush. This, is, this was very helpful for me. So I'm a recovering legalist. I go to Legalist Anonymous, LA, and we start by saying, hello, my name's Zach, and I'm a legalist. And, uh, and so I'm a recovering legalist. Here's what was really helpful for me is getting to read about Martin Luther's distinction between law and gospel and hearing him talk about God's impossible commands. Because there, if you think God's commands are obtainable in your own efforts, you will still try to do them and you'll fall short. But if you realize there has been one who has come who was pure, Jesus, who did resist temptation. When a beautiful Jewish girl walked by Jesus, he averts his eyes, okay? Who did consider others, who was kind, who wasn't anxious, who even when he, we would be tempted to be anxious in the garden, he has this non-sinful angst, trust the Father. He is the one who's done all the stuff for you. Jesus is not just your example. He's your savior. He's the one who's doing all the stuff. He's the one who's doing all the stuff. Let's pray as those who are passing out communion come forward to pass out the elements. Father, we come before you only because Christ has made a way and because you've given us the Spirit, the Spirit by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, because we have been adopted. And so we thank you so much for this text. We pray that you would uh, help us believe it. I confess that we often, and I often, don't believe this. I confess that I usually think that you have to forgive me because you're not a liar, but I forget that you actually love me, that you actually like me, that you've adopted me. Would you help us believe the truth of this text more? We look forward to the day where we get to experience your presence more unhindered, and we ask that you would guide us and help us in the meantime. I pray for those who are trying to grow in holiness by their own efforts. I pray that you would crush them and then raise them up in the mercy of Christ. I pray for those who would take what I've said to think that holiness doesn't matter or holiness isn't important. I pray that you would correct their thinking as well. We love you. We thank you as we focus on Christ's death and communion. Amen.